Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints. Episode 35, Three Kings. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on an adventure through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, we'll be talking about three wise men who foresaw the birth of Christ and traveled more than a thousand miles to adore him. Saints Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, better known as the Three Kings. Perhaps the best place to begin our journey into the lives of the Three Kings is with the names I've just given you. Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. These names first appear in the West in the 7th century AD, and they've remained the names by which these three saints are known in both the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions. That's why, as we'll talk about later, there's a tradition of chalking the letters CMB over the doors of the faithful on the Feast of the Epiphany, 6th of January. Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. But hold your horses. In other parts of the Christian world, there are some very different names for these same three saints. In Syria, for example, they are known as, sorry if I butcher this, Larvandad, Hormizdas, and Gushnasaf. And in Ethiopia, they're known as Hor, Karsudan, and Basanater. There are still other names in Armenia and other parts of the world. I'm not an etymologist, but I would guess that there may be some overlap, suggesting a common origin to these names. For example, the Syrian Hor and Hormizdas both sound vaguely similar, and perhaps they're distantly related to Melchior. Basanater and Balthazar, it's not too hard to link those up, for example. Kasper and Gushnasaf, or Karsudan, there's a kind of k or g sound at the start of all those. But it has to be admitted that these are quite different names. Which does beg the question, who were these three men, and what were their actual names? Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar are just the names we give them in the West. Perhaps those names are all derived from common sources, transforming into the different names we see around the world today over the course of hundreds of years, as they were translated into different languages and traditions. But at the end of the day, we have to admit that we don't actually know the original names of the three wise men. In that sense, they are not so similar to many of the other saints we've covered on this podcast, who are often better recorded, better documented, and, well, more clearly named. I'll be going with Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, because it's my own tradition as a Catholic, but I understand if you're from Syria, or Ethiopia, or Armenia, or any other region of the Christian world, and you're familiar with different names, that's perfectly fine, and I'm not going to tell you that names I know are more accurate than yours. They're probably not. 
In any case, who were these three wise men? Where did they come from? And, most importantly, why? Why do they show up in the story at all? Why did they travel on such a great journey from wherever they were born to visit our Lord and Savior in the manger? To help us answer that question, there's no better place to turn than the Bible. Here is what we learn about the three wise men. All we learn about the three wise men in Holy Scripture. From the second chapter of St. Matthew's Gospel, I quote, After Jesus had been born at Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod, suddenly some wise men came to Jerusalem from the east, asking, Where is the infant king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and have come to do him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was perturbed, and so was the whole of Jerusalem. He called together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, At Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means the least among the leaders of Judah, for from you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men to see him privately. He asked them the exact dates on which the star had appeared, and sent them on to Bethlehem with the words, Go and find out all about the child, and when you have found him, let me know, so that I too may go and do him homage. Having listened to what the king had to say, they set out, and suddenly the star they had seen rising went forward and halted over the place where the child was. The sight of the star filled them with delight, and going into the house they saw the child with his mother Mary, and falling to their knees they did him homage. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But they were given a warning in a dream not to go back to Herod and return to their own country by a different way. And that's it. That is all we learn from the Bible about these three wise men. They're never mentioned again, at least not directly. So what can we learn from this telling of the story, the kernel of all the later traditions which would spring up about these characters? First and foremost, they were, obviously, wise. They were learned, educated men, scientists of their day. They used astronomy to guide them to the place where they believed the king of the Jews would be born. There's our first clue. Our second clue lies in how Herod receives them. When he learns that the wise men have come to Jerusalem seeking the newborn king of the Jews, Herod 
invites them to courts, and asks questions of them, and sends them on their way to find him. Of course, we know from the rest of the story that Herod has a sordid reason for doing this. Herod is a paranoid tyrant, and believes that the newborn child will overthrow him. He has no intention of paying the Christ child homage. Quite the opposite. All the same, he clearly respects these three wise men. He sees them as intelligent, insightful, and authoritative. Our third clue comes from the fact that they bear expensive gifts, famously, as I think we all know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We'll talk later on today about what these gifts actually were and what they signified. But for now, what's important to understand about the gold and frankincense and myrrh is that they were very costly. Clearly, whoever these wise men were, they were men of means. Our fourth clue comes from Matthew's hints as to their origin. The East. Notice that Matthew doesn't specify where exactly the wise men came from in the East. He leaves it open to our interpretation. And down the centuries of Christian history, many different minds have interpreted this phrase in many different ways. To the Church Fathers, in the early days of our faith, as well as to later Christian commentators who followed them, the East from which the wise men came could be anywhere from Babylon in modern-day Iraq, to Arabia, to India, or even to China. Anywhere east of the Holy Land is fair game, which really doesn't help us all that much. However, we have a fifth and final clue, which ties all these hints together, and gives us our best explanation of who the wise men were. That fifth and final clue is the Greek word used to describe them. Matthew does not refer to these wise men by the ordinary Greek word for a group of wise men. That word would be sophoi, related to sophia, wisdom. Matthew instead calls them by a very specific Greek name, which had a very clear meaning in the ancient world. The term Matthew actually uses for the wise men is magoi, or as we say in English, magi. And here's where we run into some good news. We know from the wider history of the world who the magi were. Simply put, the magi were the priestly caste of ancient Persia. They were the scholars the intellectuals, the priests, and you could say wizards, of the ancient Persian religion, known to us as Zoroastrianism. As you probably know, this ancient Persian religion still exists to this day, 
among a fairly small group of people, mostly in India, known as the Parsis, from their Persian origin. So who were the ancient Persian Zoroastrian Magi, and why do they matter to our story? Simply put, the Zoroastrian religion in the ancient world was probably the closest pagan religion in its beliefs and practices to the faith of Israel. I'm not saying, of course, that it was equivalence or that it was as true as the faith of Israel, but it can in many ways be seen as a pagan foreshadowing, a pagan precursor to the Jewish and Christian religion. Simplifying it as best I can, the Zoroastrian worldview divides the universe into two equal but opposite forces. The forces of light and goodness on the one hand, versus the forces of darkness and evil on the other. These forces are embodied by two equal but opposite gods. The god of light, Ahura Mazda, and the god of darkness, a demon named Ariman. In the Zoroastrian worldview, it is the goal of each person to bring light to the world through good deeds, serving the will of Ahura Mazda and defeating the darkness of Ariman. The symbol of Ahura Mazda is the sacred fire which burns in Zoroastrian temples, a very traditional aspect of Indo-European religion more widely found from Europe through Persia into India in the ancient world. The fire symbolizes the life and vitality and goodness of Ahura Mazda, the god of light. And because of the prominence of sacred fire in the Zoroastrian religion, it's been common to mistake this religion for the worship of fire itself. As you can probably tell, this religion has a lot of superficial similarities with the Jewish and Christian worldview. The notion of good and evil cosmic forces locked in a battle in which human beings have a role to play on either side. But we have to note that there are some pretty big differences as well. The Zoroastrian worldview is dualist, as I said, meaning it sees good and evil as equally powerful forces. The good god, Ahura Mazda, is not seen as superior to the evil god, Ariman. He is not seen as ultimately more powerful and destined to triumph in the end, at least from my understanding of the religion. For that reason, Zoroastrianism has more in common with the Gnostic cults, which would spring up in the early history of the church, pitting the evil material world created by a demon against the superior world of spirits created by the true god against one another. I've talked in previous episodes, for example, episode 3 on St. Irenaeus and episode 9 on St. Peter Martyr, about this issue of Gnosticism, if you'd like to hear more. So, back to our story. The Magi in ancient Persia were the priests of the Zoroastrian religion. This religion which, while it didn't go all the way to the truth, had many similarities with Christianity and with Judaism. 
and can be seen as one of the noblest attempts among the ancient pagans to find the truth about good and evil. The Magi themselves were an extremely powerful caste within Persian society. They were, for most of Persia's ancient history, the ruling elites. Using their religious and moral authority, coupled with their vast and deep learning on a wide variety of subjects in literature and history and the sciences and so on, to manipulate and control the governments of the Persian Empire. Funnily enough, they often feature as bad guys in the history of Persia, if told from the point of view of the Persian emperors themselves. Figures like Cyrus the Great, who's mentioned in the Bible as the figure who rescues the Jews from captivity and allows them to rebuild the Second Temple. Figures like Cyrus the Great were often at odds with the Magi, as a class of manipulative, scheming intellectuals using their subtle cunning to capture control of the state, staffing the bureaucracy, making all the important decisions, and even overthrowing emperors who displeased them. It's for this reason that the Magi are often called magicians. In fact, our word magic comes from their name. Men who used subtlety and illusion and the left-hand path to power, if you will, to take control through rather sinister methods. But evidently, the three magi who appear in the story of Christmas are not of that make. Apparently, they represent the best of the Magian tradition. Its wisdom, its learning, its deep understanding of the natural world, and its willingness to be guided by that understanding to a higher truth, namely, the birth of the Savior. It's quite likely that our three magi were familiar with the Jewish prophecies of the coming Messiah through the work of Jewish scholars in the East, perhaps in Babylon, which was long a territory of the Persian Empire. And by linking these prophecies of the coming Jewish Messiah to their own Persian knowledge of the stars, these three magi were able to learn the location of the Savior's approaching birth, and to embark on an epic journey that probably would have taken them at least a thousand miles or more westward into Judah to adore the newborn king. It is perhaps to avoid the sinister connotations of magician or sorcerer that we often refer to the Magi by a very different title in English. We, of course, call them the Three Kings, as in the famous Victorian Christmas Carol, We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we travel afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. The Magi, as we've seen, were not actually kings, but rather priests or wizards who exercised power behind the throne. But for that reason, it's not totally far off the mark to describe them as kings. The early church father Tertullian, for example, described them as being like kings in their power and importance, and that notion of their kingliness seems to have stuck 
in the Western tradition. As the tale of the three wise men developed across the Middle Ages, in Christmas pageants and mystery plays which told the story of salvation history, it became more and more common to present these figures as kings wearing crowns. In these medieval tellings, the three wise men are often presented not as Persian magicians, but as three kings from the three continents of the known worlds, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And this idea of the three wise men as representatives of the wider world made a great deal of sense to medieval Europeans. They would have known that luxuries like gold and frankincense and myrrh largely came from Asia and Africa. More than half of the gold circulating in medieval Europe, for example, is thought to have come from West Africa specifically, where the mining empires of Ghana and Mali and Songhai, ruled by emperors like Mansa Musa, one of the richest men who's ever lived, exported tremendous amounts of gold northward across the Sahara and at times flooded the markets of the Middle East and Europe. Frankincense, too, mainly came from outside of Europe, in this case Arabia, to be precise, modern-day Yemen, whereas myrrh, a sweet-smelling perfume used to prepare the dead for burial, came largely from East Africa. So, all in all, the idea of three wise men from the three corners of the world bearing exotic goods to present to the Christ child was a very familiar one to the medieval European Christians who expanded this story of the three kings. It made sense to them. This is why, by the way, one of the three wise men, Balthazar, has traditionally been shown as an Ethiopian in European arts since around the time of the Renaissance. So let's look in a little more detail at these three gifts which the Magi presented to the infant Jesus. Who gave what gift varies quite a lot depending on tradition, but the three gifts are listed in the Bible, and they each contain a great deal of symbolism. First off, gold. In the ancient world, gold was a symbol of kingship, a sign of wealth and power and authority. Not hard to see the symbolism there. Christ is, of course, the king of kings a term, incidentally, used by the Persian emperors for themselves. This would have been a very familiar concept to the Zoroastrian Magi, worshipping the true king, the king of the universe, the coming savior Jesus Christ, with gold, the symbol of kingship. Secondly, frankincense a special form of incense used in pagan sacrifices in the ancient world. Frankincense was a symbol of worship, of giving honor to the gods. Just as gold signified that Christ would be king over all the universe, frankincense signified that he was in fact true God as well as true man, worthy of the full worship of the world. Finally, myrrh, used to bury the dead. 
I once heard someone less familiar with Christianity comments that this was a strange gift to give to a newborn baby. And of course, if you didn't know the rest of the story of Jesus Christ, it would seem a very strange gift indeed. But we know that Christ did not come to rule as an earthly king, worshipped and adored by all the worlds. We know that he came to suffer and to die for us. And so the gift of myrrh symbolizes his passion, his death, and his burial in the tomb. As the biblical account tells us, the three wise men received a vision after visiting the Christ child in Bethlehem, telling them not to go back to Herod, probably warning them of the impending massacre of the innocents. We don't know what became of them after they returned home to Persia, but we can believe that they carried the truth of who Christ was with them in some way, as they have always been regarded as Christian saints. All sorts of traditions have grown up around their feast day, the Feast of the Epiphany on the 6th of January which ends the Christmas season in the liturgical year, and traditionally culminated the wild partying of the Twelve Days of Christmas. Shakespeare's Twelfth Nights is named for this occasion. Some of the customs that mark Epiphany Day include chalking the letters C.M.B., Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, with crosses between each letter, followed usually by the year, like 2023 for us right now, over the door of your house to bless your home, enjoying sweet king cakes found in many varieties around the world, Christmas caroling, and perhaps most interestingly, the tradition of wassailing in England, a custom of singing to the apple trees, going out into the orchard to bless them and wake them up, in a sense, for the coming year. And finally, going to Mass, as it's a holy day of obligation in many parts of the Catholic world. Saints Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, as we've said, are commemorated on the 6th of January in the Catholic Church and in Eastern Orthodoxy. They are together the patron saints of many causes, including, very understandably, pilgrims, travelers, and motorists, as well as epilepsy patients, card makers, and many, many others. I'd like to close today's episode with the Orthodox Troparion, a short hymn from the Christmas liturgy celebrating the three wise men and their role in the story of Christmas. Quotes, Your birth, O Christ our God, dawned the lights of knowledge upon the earth. For by your birth, those who adored stars were taught by a star to worship you, the Son of Justice, and to know you, Orient from on high. O Lord, glory to you. End quote. If you'd like to learn more about the three wise men and deepen your own devotion to them, then you can find links to prayers and other resources in the show notes, as always. 
along with links to our Patreon and my email address where you can suggest future episodes. May Saints Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar come to our aid now and always, for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.